It's time for the PowerMizzou.com podcast with interviews and analysis of your Missouri Tigers. Now, here's your host, Gabe DeArmond. Welcome back to the PowerMizzou.com podcast. This is Gabe DeArmond in Columbia. Mitchell Forty has abandoned me this week. He is somewhere on the road on the lovely trip between Fayetteville, Arkansas, and Columbia. So I am solo in the studio. Have have Jarrett Roser from TigerDetails.com. They cover LSU for the Rivals Network. On the phone, of course, LSU at Missouri this weekend in basketball. Jarrett, what's going on, man? Hey, man, not too much. Uh, you know, just looking forward to to this matchup this weekend. I know it's it's one that the LSU Tigers are feeling a little bit nervous about after even with a win against Georgia, not necessarily feeling great about the way they played on Wednesday evening. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, LSU 5-0 and for the first time, I think. I, I don't know. I saw a tweet last night and forever. I, obviously, everybody knows Tremont Walters from LSU. Outside of him, why is LSU playing as well as it is? Yeah, so talent-wise, it's, it's one of the better teams that LSU has had. Uh, Coach Will Wade and his staff came in last year, and he actually mentioned earlier in the week that he and – and his coaches noticed very quickly that they were going to have to do a much better job uh, with, you know, their first full recruiting cycle to get a much more talented uh, roster put together. And so they went out, signed a tremendous class led by Nas Reed, the, the forward from New Jersey, and then a local guard, Javante Smart from Scotlandville here in Baton Rouge. And I mean, the list goes on well beyond that. Emmett Williams, a, a forward, that actually has been coming off the bench for LSU lately. Frank Martin, when South Carolina came to visit, said that Emmett was maybe his favorite player coming out of high school last year. And so there's been a huge influx of talent, both with freshmen and some uh, some transfer guys. And then the the players that did play last year, which uh, the bulk of those returning minutes have come from Tremont Waters and, and Skylar Mays in the backcourt, the sophomore and junior guard combo. Uh, those guys, I think, have really done a nice job coming along. And, and I mean, I, I can't credit Will Wade and company enough. They've, as talented as they've been, they've really stayed on those guys to, to make sure that even when they're winning, they're realizing some areas where they've been deficient, including defensively Wednesday against Georgia, to continue coaching them past just relying on their talent. And so that combination of, I think, a good coaching job from, from Will Wade and then the talent that they were able to bring in uh, recruiting-wise is – has really paid dividends and, and kind of shown itself. Yeah, uh, I mean, from, sorry about that. From the outside, Will no. Wade is the difference. I mean, it, this is not a program that is unused to, to top talent, not just Ben Simmons, but, I mean, going back years and years, all the way back to Chris Jackson and, and Shaq, they've, they've always gotten guys, uh, but now they're actually turning it into a good season. That, that's got to be Will Wade, right? Yeah, I mean, again, I think Will Wade's done a tremendous job, and, I guess the talent for LSU has been has had its ups and downs through those years. I mean, you look at those teams in the late 80s, early 90s under Coach Dale Brown, and you mentioned Chris Jackson and Shaq and some of those guys, Stanley Roberts. Uh, a lot of talent came through then, and there were there were some leaner years, and it, it really has just – it's been kind of up and down in that regard. Um, after the Final Four team, which that 06 team is the last time that LSU started this well in conference – they had a couple of down years talent-wise when they came back. You mentioned Ben Simmons, Antonio Blakey, and some of those guys that came in. And then when they left, 
it was a little bit down last year before this huge recruiting class that that will wait hit on but the the way that this team has come along you know I've I've been around long enough to have been around for even the the final four team when I was a, a student journalist here on campus but being around a couple of years and seeing the way things went with with that team with Ben Simmons and some of those guys the feel of the team is a lot different this team is a lot more cohesive just a lot better um better put together team in terms of uh you know, the guys playing together and just even off the court getting along very well. And, and Wade, Will Wade has done, I think, a really great job of of helping them stay focused and be focused on the process. And even when they, they get a win in conference by 10 points like they did on on Wednesday, he comes out and says that he was embarrassed with the defensive performance. And I'm sure yeah. the uh, the players are realizing that on Thursday in practice because he, he is a, a tough – He's a very enjoyable guy to be around, very funny, but when it comes time to, to get to work and to practice, uh, he, he takes that very seriously and, and makes sure that those guys are, are working and, and giving everything they've got. And you've seen it. I mean, to see Tom Crean come in here and talk about this LSU team as one of the better rebounding teams that they've faced in the country, uh, that, that's an area that they were not very good at early in the season and it's something that worried Will Wade, and he really hammered it home with them to the point where they actually now have become – a much better rebounding team than they were early in the season and have either been within a rebound or two of the the opponents they face in SEC play thus far or drastically out-rebounding them, including a 20-rebound advantage against South Carolina. And so you see those areas that even were a little bit of a low point early in the season, uh, Will Wade has has made sure those players have improved and and they're starting to, to really kind of hit their stride a little bit here as we near February. And one of those guys you mentioned earlier was uh, Nas Reed. I mean, I saw him when he was a junior in high school at an AAU event, and I think he was 37 years old then. Uh, I, I mean, Nas, Nas Reed is the definition of a full-grown man playing college basketball. Yeah, he is a big, big dude. Um, I'm trying to remember his exact uh, his exact me- measurements. He's, he's about 6'10", though, and he's – what stands out about him and has really impressed a lot of people in Baton Rouge so far is as big as he is and he's able to go out there and block shots and get rebounds and mix it up down low is he's one of those bigger guys that you hear about that, that has some guard skill to him. And so he's not, uh, not afraid to put the ball on the court and, uh, and, you know, take it up court in a transition situation. If, if he can't find a guard or if he has a bunch of space in front of him, he'll, uh, he'll get out there beyond the three-point line and handle the ball a little bit, um, you know, be able to pass it on the perimeter or pull up and, and hit a three with a hand in his face. And so his game is very, uh, very versatile, and that's something that has, has been really good for this team, too, to be able to have him provide that type of a presence anywhere on the court where they may need him depending on matchup. A couple more with Jarrett Roser from TigerDetails.com. And I, I think Tennessee is head and shoulders the class of this league. Is LSU the second best team in this league? Is that, is that realistic to finish second, or do you see Kentucky as as probably a little ahead of them at this point? You know, I I think it's realistic to potentially finish that way. Obviously, in the standings now, heading into the weekend, it's it's Tennessee and LSU are the only two that haven't lost a conference game thus far. But there's still a lot of conference games ahead, and and so. I am just kind of interested. I'm I'm not willing to say 
it's it's LSU and then Kentucky at this point. Right. We'll have a matchup coming up. I think it's February 12th, uh, you know, that, that week, that Valentine's Day week. LSU will be in Lexington, and I think that will be a huge kind of barometer measuring stick game for where exactly this LSU program is. It's, it's going to come up much more quickly than, than it may seem, and I think we'll learn a lot about this team then. I, I th- certainly think they're capable of, of being one of those top teams by the end of it, uh, but it's, it's just a long way to go between now and then, and, and Coach Cal and company in Lexington have, have had a way of, of getting those teams to come together, uh, even with all the turnover that they face annually. Yeah, so what separates, you know, decent teams from really good teams is going on the road and beating the teams you should beat. And LSU should beat Missouri uh, this weekend. They're, they're a better team, more experienced, all that. So, you know, do you think this is a team that's capable of just kind of going out and handling the business it should handle to, to get to 11, 12, 13 wins in this league? That's that's something that I think they're kind of learning about themselves one way or another at the moment. They had been really bad on the road late last season and early this season and finally got their first their first road victory, uh, their second game in conference a couple weeks ago when they went up to Arkansas was their first true road victory in, in over a calendar year. And so they've struggled when they leave Baton Rouge and certainly when they're in hostile territory, they've been – you know, kind of up and down on neutral courts. But when they're on the road, they've had some issues. And so that's part of the reason why that week where they went to Arkansas and then to Oxford and got those two victories was so big. But Coach Wade is, has kind of called his players out a little bit this week as, as they climb back into the rankings and, and criticized the way that they handled their ranking early in the season, said they didn't handle it very well. And then when they went out against Georgia and looked – like they really wanted to give that that big lead up in the second second half, he said that he saw that coming from a mile away because he, he thinks all those young guys on that team, as talented as they are, still maybe aren't handling some of the success at times as well as he would like to see. And so now that they, they are in the rankings and they survived not their best performance with a 10-point win against Georgia, I know he's, he's working them pretty hard to, to not have a letdown uh, at Mizzou because that's something that he sees as a real possibility with this group at the moment. All right. Well, Jarrett, appreciate it, man. Know you're busy. Thanks for taking the time, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to Saturday. Absolutely, Gabe. Appreciate you. All right. Have a good one. Jarrett Roser from TigerDetails.com. He covers LSU basketball, and they've been, to me, the surprise of the league. I mean, LSU's a team that's had talent for a while, but they were bad with Ben Simmons, didn't make the NCAA tournament, you know, obviously got rid of Johnny Jones. Will Wade's a better coach uh, than, than Johnny Jones was. I think that's pretty plain to see. But this is a team that I think they could push, you know, Kentucky and Tennessee to get into that top three. I'm not sure they do it because Tennessee's experienced, Kentucky's Kentucky. Uh, but I, I think LSU is is pretty clearly probably number three in this league ahead of Auburn and in Mississippi State and some others right now. Huge test for Missouri, which is, you know, obviously struggled last night. I'll talk a little bit more about Mizzou coming up, but uh, first we're going to switch gears here. Okay, we're going to go down now to Mobile, Alabama, and that is where Eric Edholm is, or at least was. Uh, Eric Edholm, Pro Football Weekly, he has been uh, moonlighting, as I've said, for Power Mizzou this week down at the Senior Bowl. Eric, you still in Mobile? I am, yeah. I don't get to use the term moonlighting very often, right. so it's uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, no, I'm here, and uh, 
you know, going to catch one final session before I hop on a plane and head back to uh, the frigid north. And then, uh, yeah, keep cranking away on all these uh, college players. I'm some, you know, just uh, getting a first look at this week. And you've been covering the Senior Bowl. How many years now? I think my first one was probably in like 2005 or so. I haven't gone every year, but I've probably been to more than I've missed since then. Okay, so obviously you've been down there kind of, uh, I mean, doing your thing, but for us following Drew Locke and uh, first question I had for you, and I know right now nobody knows, uh, mock drafts are all over the place, people are saying things, but I don't see, given the history of quarterbacks, and we all know they're always drafted higher than they should be drafted or than people think they're going to be drafted, I thought Drew Locke came into this week as a almost certain first-round pick. Do you agree with that or not? I think so, yeah. You know, I think there are people out in the media scouting world, I want to make it clear that I'm not talking about NFL people, um, a lot of whom I hadn't talked to about Locke prior, you know, to the last couple of weeks. But I think a lot of media scouting people had kind of decided that maybe Drew wasn't their favorite quarterback and that he was too up and down, you know, too high, too low, you know, too wide a disparity in his game, that they just didn't like him. And so you saw a lot of mock drafts where he wasn't in the first 32 picks or he was going mid-second round and all that. I try to, you know, read those with a grain of salt and just sort of file them away in the back of my head and not put too much stock in them. But you did see some where he was going as high as, you know, number, I think it's number 10 to the Broncos is I think where they're picking. But the, the, the more I've sort of sat back and looked at this, two things are here. First of all, Drew's played a lot. He's shown at times some real high level ability. And, and as you know, every year quarterbacks just, get pushed up the board no matter what i mean there's there's a need there's a panic if you don't have one you're kind of screwed you know and on top of it i think you know drew's at least trending in the positive direction based on you know the end of the season for the most part and what i think has been so far a productive week down here for him and the on-field stuff is obviously important. The, the off-field stuff, I, I don't know how important it is, but I think it's more important for quarterbacks than others. And what I think everybody down there is finding out that I absolutely knew, you know, a year ago, Drew Locke is going to crush the media appearances, the interviews with coaches. I, I mean, as far as just talking with these guys one-on-one, he, he absolutely now carries himself like an NFL quarterback to me. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and obviously I, you know, as, a, as an alum of Mizzou, I always keep an eye on, on the program and watch the games and hear snippets of Drew and stuff. But, you know, I, I, I think what he's doing in terms of his comfort level here is not something that's purely coached, right? I mean, so these guys get agents, they have media coaches and all that stuff. I mean, it's a finely tuned operation for the top agents like Tom Conan who reps uh, Drew, but to me, it just feels like his personality and his comfort level. You know, it wasn't like he's been asked all softball questions. A lot of, you know, some guy came in and said, hey, look, you had kind of an up and down career. And what, you know, what do you think? And, and he talked through it. It wasn't just excuse making. He didn't throw people under the bus. He explained how he felt he progressed as a quarterback, all that stuff. And it, and it sounded like the kind of things that if he was going to be saying those to NFL teams who are going to ask even tougher questions, but still, he looked entirely comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. He spoke about needing to command a room, about, you know, vocalizing play calls in a way that people trusted him and believed in him. And it just it sounded like 
a face of the franchise type quarterback, but you obviously have to pair it up with the football portion too. Yeah. And, and what I like that Drew said this week is, I mean, look, if you're a rookie quarterback in the first round, like you're probably not going somewhere that they're great and all that. And uh, for lack of a better term, insert explicit language warning here, Drew Locke has seen some shit over the last four years. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think there's a lot that's going to be thrown at Drew next year that he, that he just goes, I, I don't know how to deal with this. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, from everything from, you know, Gary Pinkle leaving 2015, his freshman year, getting thrown into the fire anyway as a, as a quarterback, suffering through some rough games and, you know, going through diff- three different offensive coordinators and that whole bit and, you know, everything else that has happened to this program, guys leaving and stuff. Sure, absolutely. I think that's a big part of it. And, <clears throat> you know, as I wrote for, for the story for you guys was, you know, I mean, the, the, he's, they've got 50 games of tape to look at him. And they can start at game one and look at game 50 or whatever and, and see the progression and pair that up with the fact that, you know, this isn't – it wasn't like he was blessed with the most ideal situation <laughs> – uh, you know, and that's that's important. I think being able to handle adversity is something that these guys absolutely are going to look for on every single level. Yeah, and the stat I loved from this year was the two guys who had the most similar record to Drew against ranked teams in their career were Patrick Mahomes and Jared Goff. And if D Ford knows where to stand, that's your Super Bowl matchup this year. So you don't have to go win 37 games in three years as a college quarterback to succeed in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so true. And and obviously, you know, you hear some of these things like, you know, Bill Parcells used to have a system about you had to have X number of starts, you had to have X, you know, Y number of victories and all that. I'm not saying that a two-time Super Bowl champion, Hall of Fame quarter uh, head coach doesn't know what he's saying, but I think there's a different scouting method here where you say, let's look at, at what he had around him, you know. Did Eli Manning win games with no NFL talent on his team at Ole Miss? Yes. And so, you know, that certainly helped him. That, But there's another way of looking at it, which is that victories do not translate every time because there have been plenty of quarterbacks who've had brilliant team records in college football who have been terrible NFL quarterbacks. So let's get down to brass tacks with, with Eric at home. As far as the competition here for Drew, I mean, I just want to go through some of these guys one by one, and I'll start kind yep. of from the bottom. To me, Will Greer is – if I'm picking between Drew Locke and Will Greer, there's no question I'm taking Drew Locke. I am too. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it, again, it was one practice. Let's not put too much into it. His first day, he struggled. What I thought was hilarious was that Greer came out and – I mean, he – you know, fumbled a snap, threw behind a wide-open Debo Samuel, you know, missed another guy, bounced a couple balls. After practice, he's saying, I'm the best quarterback down here. <laughs> I was like, wow, this yeah. guy's got something interesting. But, yeah, I'm, I'm taking that every time. Drew Locke. The interesting one, as far as the guy that's down there this week, is Daniel Jones from Duke. And, and if yep. anybody watched his – I, I'm not going to say I watched a lot of Duke, but a couple of years ago I watched North Carolina's bowl game when I started hearing Mitchell Trubisky, and I watched that game and said, this kid can play. A lot of people yep. watched uh, watched Duke's bowl game and said, this kid can play. So by April, Drew Locke, Daniel Jones, is it is it going to come down between those two guys to just kind of an individual team, do you think, what what that team thinks? I think it might. I really do. What, I, what was interesting was, you know, Jones is – Personality-wise, he is the opposite of Drew. He looked uncomfortable at the at the podium, and you know wasn't saying much. There was a question thrown thrown at him about 
you know, he had sort of an unusually high number of balls batted down at the line. You think a six foot five guy, I mean, he looks the part, right? And he got a little, a little awkward, a little testy. And you thought to yourself, geez, you know, you think Duke polished, you know, all that yeah. stuff. I closed my ear. I closed my eyes and it sounded like I was talking to, you know, it was almost like Eli Manning. Like he was very plain and boring, but in the practices, he's been a little wild. He's thrown some picks. Does that matter? Well, it might to John Gruden and the Raiders. If, right. if they're coaching both these guys this week up close, they're seeing them in meeting rooms, they're, they're watching the film, you know, that could be the difference. So it just takes that one team to say, all right, I like Locke a little better than, than uh, Jones, and we're picking here, we're going to take him. So I think that is going to be one of those uh, beauty in the eye of the beholder matchups between those two. Yeah, and to be fair to Daniel Jones, he's probably not used to people actually covering his football games. <laughs> they're they're over watching basketball practice. Uh, yeah, he's not a hoopster. That's the problem. Yeah. yeah so uh, then the one that I, I I'm pretty confident goes ahead of Drew, and that's Dwayne Haskins from Ohio State. I know he's not down there this week, but yeah, I, when he declared and Justin Herbert didn't, I think most people said that's the number one quarterback in this class. I think you're right. And, you know, like Trubisky, he came into, you know, he's got basically 13, 14 starts on his, on his resume. I think he had one last year and, and 13 this past season or whatever the number ended up being, but basically a small sample size. Now, most of what he did was really good, you know, and he finished the year strong, kind of like what you said with, uh, with Trubisky's bowl game, you know, just kept coming after Stanford. Same thing with Haskins in the Rose Bowl. Put on a banner performance, had an unbelievable statistical year. You know, if you flip on the Purdue tape, are you going to have some issues with what he did? By the way, same Purdue tape that Drew told me was his best tape. Like if I, mm-hmm. I asked Drew this week, I said, you know, what, what tape would you proudly just slide over to scouts? And he said, probably the Purdue game, maybe the Florida game this year. So, You know, this is a Purdue team that gave Haskins some trouble. That said, I think there's some real intrigue with him. And he kind of actually reminds me of Trubisky in a way. You know, I mean, he can run if you need, but he's he's a pocket guy. Mm -hmm. Maybe Trubisky's a little bit more of a runner, but I see that same kind of profile where it wouldn't shock me if somebody trades up into the top six, seven, eight picks and and decides Dwayne Haskins is my guy. So I think he's QB1 right now. I want to commend you for being the first person ever on record to compare an African-American quarterback to a white quarterback. So that's you know, an excellent I, I job. I was wondering if you'd notice. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I did it subtly. I tried not to make a big deal out of it. I'm glad you picked up on that. <laughs> All right, so the last one, and look, I everybody knows I'm not an NFL GM. I thought Baker Mayfield was going to get somebody fired, and he looks pretty good. What <laughs> the hell do you do with Kyler Murray? It's going to be the absolute, I mean, honestly, this is, this is the buzz player for the next three months. You know, he is the player who is going to either, you know, change the archetype or, or, you know, I I just can't wait to see how he's treated. And he's going to change this draft depending on who falls in love with him. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. And my gut says that he'll be a first round pick. I just, he's, he's such a special athlete. He's got the arm talent you want. Now, not only the fact that he might measure in it at 5'8 and 7'8, like right. he might come in below 5'9, and boy, off the top of my head, uh, you know, Doug Flutie, like who else is, you know. That's it. Joe really? Hamilton. I mean, there's just haven't been that many guys that size. And his frame, he's really skinny. So I would think it would go to one of these, one of these teams that hired a – Young head coach who's willing to bring in kind of those air raid concepts or those spread concepts that they run with 
at Oklahoma, somebody who's got a well-coached and well, uh, you know, buffed up offensive line and the right scheme to get the ball out. I don't know, man. It's it's so fascinating, but I can't help but think he's going to go somewhere in round one. It, what would scare me if I'm drafting Kyler Murray, he's the only guy in this draft who any day could wake up and go, I'm done with football and go make millions of dollars doing something else. He would. He would. And that's, you know, it was funny. I have a friend who's in scouting in baseball, one of the major league teams, and, and I'm not by any means a baseball scout or I don't know. You know, I don't follow this stuff. So I asked him, I said, well, what's the deal with him? Do you think, you know, and he said it was a little bit of a surprise that he went as high as he did and that, you know, a team at least sort of had to think, well, there's a possibility he could be a pro football player and that this situation could arise. So you're right. I mean, there, not only his size, not only his lack of experience, like we said with Haskins, not a ton of college tape on him, but also this baseball thing that at any minute, could be the kind of thing that that just gives somebody pause and he could just leave and say I'll go be an outfielder and I'll be fine he's been compared to Ricky Henderson I don't know that seems crazy to me but I don't know I that is those are three big worries right now all right so we'll finish up with this just I mean the teams that have kind of been tied to Drew are Oakland a little bit and I know Gruden's down there Denver Washington Miami we've heard New Orleans a little bit maybe the Giants um just from a perspective, you watch these teams, like what's the best fit for Drew Locke? Because I want somewhere where he can go and he can sit for one year, if not two, with a front yeah. office guy that is secure enough in his job to not panic and put him in in week six. I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly right. And and I, I asked Drew something similar to that, which is, you know, are you starting to look at situations that are, hey, year one would be in play, maybe more year two. And he said a little bit. He didn't exactly, you know, it was very sort of smart for him to kind of sidestep that question. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why Washington scares me the most because yeah. they're a team. We, Alex Smith, we don't know if he's going to play ever again. You know, we, we, you know, it just it, – it, it's a scary deal because you have a coaching staff that could be fired any minute. I think he'd be great with Jay Gruden. But if he gets thrown in there and gets killed right away – you know, we could be looking at the Blaine Gabbert route where he just sort of pops around as the, the backup who starts a couple games a year for the next uh, 10 years. But, yeah, I just sort of worry about that. Cincinnati's one to watch. I don't know okay. what their plans are with Andy Dalton, but, you know, he either could be moved this year, the new head coach, you know, sort of a new philosophy there, or he could be Dalton's backup year one and they move to Drew year two or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, the Dolphins scare you because there's, plenty of talk about moving on from Tannehill and then you ask okay well who's who's your veteran option first kind of like what what the Browns did with Tyrod Taylor and then Baker yeah there's two places to me that I'd like and it's not completely coincidental they're both in the NFC but if New York is committed to saying okay we're going to give Eli one more full year and let him go out on his terms like sit for a year and come into a place with Odell Beckham and Saquon Barkley I'd like that number two is I, I would hate it for Drew on draft night because Aaron Aaron Rodgers' draft night experience is, is one of the most painful things you've ever seen on TV, but it paid off because he went to the right place. If that could happen to Drew and the New Orleans Saints are really interested, I, you can't get better than that. I think you're right. I mean, that would be, you know, that would be ideal, right? And I would probably have to feel comfortable about trading back into the end of round one. Now, they don't have a, they don't have a first-round pick, as you mentioned, 
they're picking at number 62. Would they consider doing the same thing they did a year ago, which is trading their first round pick from a year from now to move up into that range to get them? I don't know. Remember, yeah. remember, this is a Saints team that Pat was picking right behind number 10, where the, uh, I think it was number 10, where the Chiefs got Mahomes. Yeah. And so they wanted Patrick Mahomes. I mean, I think Sean Payton has almost said that on the record, too. I can't remember, but. I mean, that was their guy. I'm not saying Drew is Patrick Mahomes. I'm just saying that they've had their eye on a replacement for Drew for a little while now, and they're not going to be sitting around too much longer. So I think Murray and Locke are two options for the Saints if if things kind of break the right way for them. And, hey, it's the only place, like, they don't have to change their marketing. It's just here's our quarterback, Drew. It works perfect. Yeah. Exactly. Drew works here. Drew does well in New Orleans, right? (laughs) All right. Well, Eric, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for everything this week, and we'll catch up down the road. Perfect. Sounds good, Gabe. Thank you. All right. Eric Edholm, Pro Football Weekly, and at least for this week, PowerMizzou.com. Three stories up on our site from the last three days. He's followed Drew around. uh, He's the only Missouri player there, so I didn't really want to get into, you know, Emmanuel Hall and all that. Like, Eric is down there for us to to follow Drew and his experience and all that, and it's going to be fascinating. Come April, I I mean, I think Drew – He's going to have to be really good at Pro Day in the Combine to be QB1 because, like we said, I, I think Dwayne Haskins is that guy. I think he's off the board somewhere. Unless John Gruden falls in love with Drew Locke at the Senior Bowl this week and takes him number two. I, I've i got a hard time seeing that. Uh, I, I don't think Drew Locke is number two overall. But, you know, weird things happen in the NFL draft, especially with quarterbacks, so we will uh, we'll certainly keep our eye on that. And who knows, maybe, uh, maybe get a chance to – to get Drew on this podcast sometime before uh, the draft in, I think it's in Nashville this year in April. want to finish up talking a little basketball. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, Missouri lost in Fayetteville last night. It was a very predictable thing. Actually, they got up 17-4. Arkansas, I think, scored two straight baskets. It was 17-8, and I texted uh, Mitchell Forty, and I said Missouri's going to be behind at halftime. Uh, They were not behind at halftime. They were ahead 34-32, but – when you have a 13-point lead on the road and it's a two-point game at halftime, like, you're not winning that game. And Missouri didn't win that game. They turned the ball over 24 times, 32-point-something percent of their possessions. Jeremiah Tillman, four fouls in 10 minutes in the second half. It was the same game we've seen. Kevin Perrier said after the game, it's the same old song. I'm getting kind of tired of talking about it, which, frankly, that could be Kevin's mantra for three of his four years here like that kid deserves immense credit he's always the guy that's talked to the media he's never turned down an interview and there have been a lot of times that it just felt like yeah I I know we just asked you this last week and I know you just answered it last week but we need to change the words so can you answer it again and he always has but Missouri you know winnable game that they didn't win and now a, a tougher test on Saturday against LSU then they're at Auburn that has all the makings of a loss. You know, this is a team that's probably going to be one and six in SEC play uh, with the end goal. I don't know, maybe six and 12 for a 500 season. And I I, uh, tweeted a a string of tweets today because I had more than 280 characters worth of things to say. Look, last year, this is, this is an unpopular thing to say last year in many ways is the worst thing that could have happened to Missouri basketball because what it did is almost erase memories of the three years before and set fans up to think, okay, now this is an NCAA tournament program again. And with Jonte Porter, is that realistic? Maybe. 
I, I think they'd have had a chance with Jonte on this team because I think Jonte changes the way Tillman can play. I think he just makes everything easier for everybody on the floor. So with Jonte Porter, maybe that was realistic. But once he got hurt, it just wasn't. And now I'm starting to see people saying, what's Conzo doing? These guys aren't are developing. <laughs> guys, th- this is not a team that has – I'm not sure this is a team that has NIT-level talent. Jordan Geist is their best player and, and a, a really gutty guy, playing really well. Playing, frankly, probably a little above his talent level, um, but he's the leader of this team. Jeremiah Tillman is an immensely talented guy that's on the floor for about 20 minutes a game. Uh, Javon Pickett has been really good, uh, is is now, we don't know, a little banged up, and we're not sure his status. Mark Smith is a great shooter. Um, he's coming along in other aspects of the game. He may be hurt now. We don't know his status. And beyond that, I, there's just there's not much you've seen right now. Um, you don't win a lot of SEC basketball games with three or four guys, and that's what Missouri's got right now. This I wrote this. I went back and looked at a few old things a couple weeks ago. I wrote this the night they lost to Florida State. I said, now the rebuild begins. Like, this was fun. This isn't sustainable. You know, you brought in, you got Michael Porter, and you went all in for last year. You pushed all the chips to the middle of the table. And then the problem was the biggest chip got taken out and thrown on the floor. Like, Mike did a lot of good things for Missouri basketball in terms of interest, in terms of ticket sales, in terms of enthusiasm, national attention. Those are all good things. He helped get some other talent in here. But now, when Jonte went down, the only thing that was left out of that class is Jeremiah Tillman. And... So the biggest piece of that of that instant rebuild, Conzo Martin got nothing out of. Uh, they didn't win a game that he started. You know, so, I mean, I guess they did if you count the Iowa State game, but I don't because he played two minutes. So the, the biggest piece of that didn't translate into anything on the floor, and then this is really Conzo Martin's first year. And I'm not going to judge him yet. Now, look, I also think there are some things that make you at least wary. The recruiting right now, I don't think it it's at a level where you can go talk about winning the SEC or being second in the SEC behind Kentucky. And I know what Tennessee's doing, but Tennessee is the you know they're the exception, not the rule. The recruiting does have to get better. Um, you know they missed EJ Liddell, so these twenty twenty guys, Cameron Fletcher, Josh Christopher, Caleb Love, like they need to close on some of those guys. That's why he's here. That's that's why they hired him. And if that doesn't happen, then yes, you're going to start to worry. And I think at the end of next season, the beginning of the following season, you can start to form some conclusions about Conzo Martin and what he might do here. I don't think you can form them right now. This is going to be a team that probably struggles to get to 15 wins, and we'll just see where it goes. Um, You know, but this is – I don't want to say it's a lost year. It's not a lost year. It's a developmental year for Missouri basketball. So back in action – Saturday afternoon at 5, Mitchell's covering that game against LSU for us. And uh, official visitors should be in town this weekend. We'll have the Chamber tomorrow. We'll follow that up to signing day, which is now a little under two weeks away. And we'll be back on the podcast next week. Thanks for listening.